I want to do something this morning. If you'll take your Bibles out and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Now, as we turn to Ephesians chapter 2, you will probably take note that we looked at this passage one Sunday last year. And sometimes, you know, when a preacher preaches the same text again, congregation thinks, oh, he just pulled out his old notes. Uh, That would be a wrong assumption. Uh, You know, I thought this morning I ought to give you some uh, of, I've been reading a book this week, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest preachers of our modern times. He's got a book, 380 pages long of small print on this passage alone. Tremendous book. One of the greatest expositions of this passage I've ever read in my life. But I want to I have a two-fold purpose this morning, okay? Get your sermon notes out. I've placed additional ones on the end of the pews. If you don't have them, extra ones in the lobby. And as we go through the message this morning, here's the two-fold purpose I want to do. Take notes, and what I'm going to talk to you about this morning, hopefully I'm going to help you this week to share the gospel with lost people around you. We're told that this week in the life of the church every year is one of the weeks that the culture is the most open to hearing the Christian gospel. So I hope what I do this morning is going to equip you to be able to share the gospel this week leading into Easter. And then secondly, in this twofold purpose, the young people. Hopefully they will take notes on this. As they go to Wilmington, Delaware, they will have something too. They will be better equipped to share the good news of Christ. John R. W. Stott says that what we have in these nine verses is a summary of Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. Three chapters in the book of Romans are summarized in these nine verses. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Paul says, beginning in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves or your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
Lord, we are dependent upon your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and ears that we might behold wonderful things out of your word. Lord, help us to very clearly understand the gospel and what you have done for us. And God, as we look at your larger purpose in sending your Son and what the gospel is all about, help us to tie it in with Palm Sunday and what those first pilgrims on Palm Sunday were expecting. And you did not work according to their expectations because you had a larger purpose in mind. And God, because of that, they missed it. They missed what you were doing. Help us not to miss it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Today, as Jonathan has already mentioned, of course, we're celebrating Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the first day of Passion Week. You say, what in the world is Passion Week? Passion Week is that week of the suffering and rejection of the Lord Jesus that culminated in His crucifixion and then His resurrection. Now, in the past I've given you the traditional calendar and apparently that has helped some of you to kind of get your minds around what that week looked like. Let's let's look at that again. On Sunday, we know that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the donkey to the shouts of the crowd as they're laying their palm branches and their outer garments in his pathway. Monday, Jesus cleansed the temple. The money changers had set up a market in the outer court of the temple. Now, we need to understand what was happening there. You see, in the minds of those who were in charge of the tables, they were providing a valuable service to pilgrims coming in from out of town to celebrate the Passover. Because if you were a traveler, you could buy the animals for sacrifice at the tables there in the courtyard of the temple, and you had right there what you needed to celebrate the Passover. It was a drive-through convenience, if you will. But what the money changers had done was to set up a market in the only area of the temple grounds where Gentiles could worship God. And so in that very area where Gentiles could worship God, it was a loud marketplace and their worship was hindered. That's what made Jesus so angry. On Tuesday, he encountered difficulties and controversies with the Jewish leaders. He and the disciples go to the Mount of Olives, and there Jesus gives to them what is known as the Olivet Discourse, where he tells them about his second coming and all of the events of tribulation that are going to precede that. On Wednesday, apparently, he enjoyed a rather quiet day, Spent with his disciples. On Thursday, we see the preparation for the Passover. 
And that night, Jesus is arrested in the garden and subjected all night long to a mock trial, an illegal trial. And then on Friday, there was the trial and the crucifixion. On Saturday, Jesus' lifeless body rests in the tomb. And on Sunday, Jesus was raised from the dead after three days in the tomb. You see, in the Jewish way of reckoning time, any time spent in the tomb on a given day would count as that day. That's why we say after three days he arose. Friday and Sunday both would have been counted despite the fact that he wasn't in the tomb 24 hours each of those two days. Then on Palm Sunday, Jesus was riding into Jerusalem and being presented in fulfillment of prophecy as Israel's king and as king of kings and lord of lords. But, as we see in the prophet Isaiah, God did not intend for him to occupy an earthly throne yet. That's future. He came the first time as the suffering servant to give his life as a ransom for sins. Folks, without the cross, there would be no forgiveness. Without forgiveness, there would be no peace with God. There would be no reconciliation between us and God. And so the issue of our redemption had to be taken care of first. And so I want us to look at Palm Sunday today from the perspective of their rejection of Jesus' salvation mission. They didn't understand what God was doing. Now folks, oftentimes you and I don't understand everything that was going on that first Palm Sunday. It was unmistakable what was happening in the minds of the Jewish pilgrims who were in the crowd that day. To them, Jesus was riding into Jerusalem and right then and there he was going to overthrow Rome and set up an earthly kingdom. And so to them, all of their days of being under Roman bondage was about to end. I mean, this is a fast food, drive-through, microwave style, right now at this moment, we want it our way type of moment in their minds. They're casting palm branches in his path. They're taking off their outer cloaks and they're throwing them down for Jesus and the donkey he was riding on to ride over them. It was a symbol of the people saying, We want you to rule over us. It was a sign of submission. And they're shouting, Hosanna, which carried the overtones of save us now. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us now. Save us now. I mean, to them, it is all about to happen. They are moments away from God's kingdom on earth. Jesus is going to sit on David's throne. Israel is going to enjoy the lion and the lamb lying down together. This is an eschatological moment in their minds. Eschatology in times. This is an eschatological moment. And they have a front row seat everything that's taking place folks do you see what was happening does that help you to understand the mood of celebration meanwhile Luke tells us in his account 
that Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. The crowd celebrating. God's kingdom is about to come. Jesus is weeping. They've missed it all together. They're blind. They're clueless. Jesus is about to die, not to sit on a throne at the moment, at least not an earthly throne. He's about to die because of our sin, the perfect sin sacrifice that will forever satisfy. God's justice is about to be offered. Not a crown, but a cross is about to happen. Oh, there'll be a crown someday, but that someday is not this day. They're going to have to wait. As the week wore on, they began to get impatient. And their impatience turned to anger. And so by the end of the week, they are thinking that Jesus is not king after all. He's a fraud. We've been duped. Crucify him. Crucify him. Do you see why Jesus is crying while they're cheering? They're so blind. Yes, Jesus is about to make salvation possible in order that he can save us now. But but they're going to miss it. In their impatience, they're going to miss it. They don't see that God's ways are higher than our ways. God has a plan and a refusal to wait. A refusal to wait on God's plan means that ultimately when it happens, they're going to miss it. Now, folks, we can throw rocks at this crowd all we want to, but I want you to understand something. We do the very same thing. We want something, and we want it now. I'm not going to wait. I'm not even going to wait on God. I want what I want, and I want it now. That type of mentality is all around in our culture today and it's even crept into the church. We want what we want and we want it now. Folks, but do you realize that waiting, waiting on the Lord is a biblical concept? It's biblical to wait. And as somebody has wisely said... God is seldom early, but never late. Does God have you waiting on something now? God has you exactly where He wants you. Are you blind to that? Are you throwing your garments down and saying, Save us now, save us now? Or do you have eyes to see what God is really up to? Why did Jesus come? Why was he rejected? Why did he suffer? Why did he die? Why didn't he ride into Jerusalem that day and do what they were expecting? I mean, he certainly could have. Do you realize that the one who walked on the water and calmed the storms could have that day, that first Palm Sunday, ridden into Jerusalem and he could have overthrown the Roman powers? Remember what happened in the garden when Jesus was arrested? The soldier said, are you Jesus? And he said, I am he. And do you remember what happened? They fell back. The power of his omnipotence. Jesus could have ridden into Jerusalem and said, I am he. And all of the powers of Rome would have fallen backwards. 
Why didn't he do that? And that's what I want us to explore today. And what I want us to see today from the broader, larger theological perspective, what was God up to? Why the cross? Why not go straight to the crown? Why the cross before the crown? Paul helps us to understand that. I want you to see with me first of all this morning man's universal guilt. Paul says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We see right here in these phrases... A series of statements that constitute bad news. That's why I've titled the message this morning, Bad News, Good News. Normally we say good news, bad news, but it's bad news first. Bad news abounds all around us in the culture today. All you got to do is cut on your computer or your television set, watch the news, listen to your news feed, and you will see bad news abounding in the world today. But what Paul wants us to understand is that the bad news in the world isn't the worst news. There is far worse news that you and I need to understand. And Paul lays that out here. In four statements he points out we were dead, we were enslaved, we were all guilty, we were all condemned. Let's look at each one of those in order. He says in verse 1, we were dead. Every person born into this world, it's like they have a DOA tag attached to their toe. People are not just spiritually sick like they have the flu they're not even in the ICU unit the Bible says we were dead in our trespasses and sins physically alive spiritually dead that's why uh, Jesus was going to tell Nicodemus later on there's got to be a spiritual birth in addition to a physical birth The physical birth alone will never get you into heaven. Folks, this is the verdict that the Word of God gives. Theologian John Gerstner said that what we need to picture is zombies. Now, of course, zombies are science fiction. But you know what zombies are? It's dead people up walking as though they're alive, but they're not. They're dead and they're decaying. Gerstner said that's how lost people are. And their decay is a stench in the nostrils of a holy God. Folks, there is one thing that's true of every single one of us right now. Either you were dead or you are dead. So verse 1 here is either a statement of your past. Or of your present. If you do not know Jesus Christ in a personal way. You are a dead man walking. Every bed in your home is like a casket if you don't know Jesus. You are a dead man. 
Now, there is something I gave you one time before in a message I think it's worth repeating. It's that statement by John R.W. Stott. You have it on your page there. John Stott says, This biblical statement about the deadness of non-Christian people raises problems for many because it does not seem to square with the facts of everyday experience. Lots of people who make no Christian profession whatever, who even openly repudiate Jesus Christ, appear to be very much alive. One has the vigorous body of an athlete, another the lively mind of a scholar, a third the vivacious personality of a film star. Are we to say that such people, if Christ does not save them, are dead? Yes, indeed. We must and do say this very thing. For in the sphere which matters supremely, which is neither the body nor the mind nor the personality, but the soul, they have no life, and you can tell it. They are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ and deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God, no sensitive awareness of His personal reality, no leaping of their spirit towards Him in the cry, Abba, Father, no longing for fellowship with His people. They are as unresponsive to him as a corpse. And folks, let's face it. It's not just the people out there. There are good, good in the eyes of men, good in religious people in churches every Sunday who are dead to the things of God and they show little to no interest in the things of God. Jesus said so. He encountered them. He told a parable about wheat and tares growing up together until the end when a final separation will be made at the judgment. What's the problem with humanity? We're dead in trespasses and sins. And in that state, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Don't you remember before you were saved? You would read your Bible and think, what in the world is this saying? You'd come to church and you, what in the world is my Sunday school teacher talking about? I have no idea what this guy is saying or what this lady is saying. Go to church. What in the world is the preacher saying? I have no idea what he's talking about. And then you got saved. And what happened? It's like the light bulb was turned on. And all of a sudden you could say, aha, I see. But again, before that, Paul says we're dead in trespasses. That phrase refers to deliberate acts of disobedience to God. He goes on to say, dead in sins. This phrase refers to missing the mark and falling short of God's standard of perfection. It can refer to choosing our own way. Secondly, about our condition, he says in verse 2 that we were enslaved. And he gives us a trilogy here. An ugly trilogy. He's going to say that inside of us, outside of us, and beyond us, there are things holding us in bondage. 
First of all, there's the course of this world. Now, what he's talking about here is the value system of the world, the patterns of the world, the value system of the world that's alien to God. It permeates non-Christian society and it holds people in captivity. He says here that people basically, without even realizing it, pledge their allegiance to the value system of the day. They mindlessly surrender to their current culture. It is a cultural bondage and they take their cues from what they see going on around them. Maybe what's going on in Washington or New York or Hollywood or Vegas or whatever. They're taking their cues from society. A second member of this trilogy holding people in bondage is the prince of the power of the air that he talks about also in verse 2. What's he talking about there? Satan. Satan. And then in addition to that, he says, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. Now the Greek grammar helps us out here. The word spirit is, he's not modifying, he's not talking about Satan. He's talking about a spirit in the world, an attitude in the world that the devil creates. So we have an enemy in the world that attacks us, hold us, holds us in bondage. And then he creates a certain spirit in the world that is at work in the sons of disobedience. And so here he's pointing out we have a multifaceted attack of the evil one. And again the Bible is saying this is what lost people are held in bondage to. It's an unflattering image of, of mankind, but it is the biblical image given. He adds to this in verse 3 that we were all guilty. What Paul is saying here is his words are not just addressed to one little group of people. Oh, you know, that's true of them. What he's saying here, dead and trespasses and sins, that's true of those people over there, but not us. No. That's not right. He's not talking about one group, one nation, one tribe, one tongue. He's talking about something that's universal. Now, he's not saying that all men sin equally because some have got quite good at it. Some are quite prolific at it. But what he is saying is that all men are equally in this state of sin. And we live in the lust of the flesh and of the mind and we live to please the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Whether it has to do with money or materialism or the things of the world, whether it has to do with lust and sex and pleasure or our choices for entertainment, he's saying we're all guilty. Now folks, God gives us desires because he's given us a body. We're not just spirit, but we have a body. And bodies do have desires. That's not evil in and of itself. But what, what, what does a lost man do? He takes these desires and instead of carrying out these desires of the flesh within the boundaries of God's word, he perverts these desires. He points out the whole human race is guilty. 
And then a fourth statement here, he points out, we were all condemned. By nature, we were children of wrath. Two words in the Bible used of wrath. Thumos, a sudden outbreak, a sudden burst of God's judgment, like against the children of Israel in the wilderness when they would do something and boom, God would come in and do something. Maybe a plague and 10,000 of them would die. That's thumos. That's not the word here. The word here is orge. And with orge, think of fruit that is ripening. God's judgment ripening. Getting to a point that finally he executes his judgment. Paul says we are all by nature children of wrath. By nature and by choice we sin. We sin even while realizing that some of the sin we do hurts us, hurts our families, hurts those around us, but we do it anyway. Why? Because by nature and by choice, this is who we are. Now folks, what you have here in in these first three verses is your family portrait and my family portrait. Okay? Your family portrait and my family portrait. Aren't you glad, though, that God at this point doesn't say, okay, close the book and go home. You're hopeless. It's all over. You're done for. Aren't you glad it doesn't end there? I want you to see, secondly, God's unmerited grace. Look at verse 4. He says, but God. Aren't those two sweet words in the context of what we've just read? I mean, those words right there make you feel like breaking out in song, singing a hallelujah chorus or amazing grace or victory in Jesus. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Folks, look at what God has done. He's made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places. And so in just a few short sentences here, we've gone from the spiritual graveyard to God's penthouse. We've gone from the depths of hell to the streets of gold in heaven. God has intervened to save us, to change our present and our future. And who has done it? God's done it. I got news for you. My salvation is not 50% me and 50% God. I do my part. God's done his part. Folks, God did it. God did it. And we're going to talk about that later on in in verse 8. Pointing out plainly, verse 8 is going to point out that this whole process is God's doing. Does this lessen man's responsibility? No. If anything, it increases it. And points out that men are without excuse. Why God did it? Because he's rich in mercy, Paul says here in verse 4. 
God's rich. The Bible says God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's, that's the psalmist's way of saying God owns it all. The psalmist says elsewhere, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God is rich, but aren't you glad he's also rich in mercy? The book of Lamentations says God's mercies are new every morning. Not only is he rich in mercy, but he has a great love for you. Verse 4 says, because of his great love, some of the best theology that you will ever hear is Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. So what's God do? God draws salvation's plan in the eternal decrees of a sovereign God. He comes to spiritually dead men and women who are doomed by their own actions and choices uh, and, and, and nature. And through the power of His Holy Spirit, He quickens us. He re- regenerates us. He gives life. We go from death to life. And verse 7 points out why he did it. So that throughout all of eternity, God's grace, God's mercy, and God's love are going to be on display. And you and I are going to be exhibit A. Thirdly, I want you to see salvation's unmistakable plan. Verse 8. Paul says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul's just told us about this wonderful salvation, what God did and why, but how does it all take place? In verses 8 and 9, what, what do we find out? We learn the stunning news That salvation is not wages earned. In society, we've got this mentality. Finish this phrase. You get what you pay for. People miss this. One of the most simple truths in the Bible. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This not of yourselves. This is the gift of God. Not as a result of works. That no one should boast. Folks, there's a lot that we don't understand. There's a lot that a lot of people don't understand. But there is one thing that we cannot afford to be ignorant on. And it's this verse right here. I want you to think with me about that little New Testament book of Philemon comes right before the book of Hebrews. It's more like a little postcard than a letter. And you read that letter and you think, why is that in the canon of Scripture? It's a little letter from Paul to Philemon. And you read it, what's that about? You remember what Philemon's about? It's great gospel truth. It's an application, an analogy of the gospel. Philemon has a church in his household and he has a servant, Onesimus. And Onesimus apparently steals something from him and runs away. And he runs to Rome because he's thinking in Rome, evidently, he can sort of hide in the crowd. But as God would have it, 
He meets up with the Apostle Paul and he hears the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And when he's saved, when he's converted, he gets under conviction that what he did to his master back home, Philemon, he didn't do right by him. And so Paul writes Philemon a letter, and in that letter he says, Philemon, I want you to, I'm sending Onesimus back to you and and receive him not as a servant, but as a friend, and, and even not as a friend, but as a brother in Christ now. And you remember what Paul said? Whatever he has done, lay it on me. Put it on my account. Folks, it's a picture of the gospel. What's Jesus say? Father, put it on my account. We sinned. We have a debt against God. We couldn't pay. And Jesus says, put it on my account. And he bears it on the cross. By grace you've been saved through faith. And this not your own doing. What's the gift of God? All of this is. I realize our English translations don't bring it out very well. We, we can miss it in English. But in the, in the Greek text, what's the gift of God? Everything you read in verse 8 here. Everything, everything is the gift of God. It's, God doing, it's God's doing the plan from eternity past. The offer, the gift, faith from beginning to end. It is all the gift of God. And folks, I want to tell you that orthodox theologians through history, they can be Arminian, they can be Calvinist, they can be Baptist, and all orthodox theologians through history have affirmed this truth. It is all the gift of God. Now, yeah, there have been some heresies. The early church encountered a man named Pelagius, a, a fourth century British monk. He said everybody was born into this world with a clean slate. You were like, you were like Adam and Eve before Genesis 3, before the fall. And you have the potential of living your life without sin, the way Adam and Eve could have had they not sinned in the garden. Now, fortunately, what Pelagius taught was condemned. But today, we have semi-Pelagianism. I do my part, God does his part. I do my part, and as a result, as a response to what I do, God rewards me. With salvation. Some modern writers are calling it decision generation versus regeneration. Do I have to make a decision for Christ? Yes, but it's part of God. God regenerates the dead. And as part of God's regenerating the dead, yes, you repent and believe. But 
course, God's doing. And I tell you what the perfect picture of it is in the Bible. It's John chapter 11, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was dead. He'd been in the tomb four days. No question that he was dead. And he wasn't hanging a hanky out the window saying, Jesus, come to my tomb. He was dead. And Jesus raised a dead man and gave a dead man life. That's a picture of regeneration. God comes to spiritually dead men and women. Regenerates us. Gives us life. Again, as part of that, do you have have to respond? Absolutely. Repent and believe. But it's it's all God's doing. It's so clear in the New Testament and people miss it. Folks, if we could get to heaven and we had done any of it, guess why? Kevin, look at what I'm I'm done. I'm in heaven because what what I did. What did you do to get here? What did you do to get here in heaven? This is what I did to get here in heaven. What did you do? We could boast and Believe you me, there would be boasting. But what God's done is make it so no one can boast. In fact, Paul said to the Galatians, if there's any boasting, what is there boasting in? There's boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? I want to ask you this morning, do these verses describe your past or your present. I hope we're talking about your past in these first three verses. But I could be speaking to somebody that the Holy Spirit has been convicting you of your sin. There's a a heaviness in your heart. There's a lack of peace. There's conviction. There's something going on in your life. You know you're not right with God. And God is doing something. You know what God is doing? God is awakening the dead. Believe upon Christ. Am I speaking to somebody here that needs to repent and believe upon Christ? I trust that I'm speaking to most people who have been spiritually awakened. You may not remember the exact day. You may not even remember the exact week. But you remember a time in your life that you were dead to the things of God. And God regenerated your soul. God saved you. And it's like the light bulbs turned on. And there was a quickening there. There was spiritual life. All of a sudden, you were tuned into the things of God. It's that birth from above, birth of the Spirit, again, that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus about. And you remember that. You became a new creation in Christ. Where old things passed away and all things became new. I want you to see that you seated in the heavenlies with Christ is as good as done. Oh, you're still in a sin-sick world? God God doesn't save us and remove us. But you've got a wonderful future ahead. Your best life is not now. Your best life now? No. Your best life is future. 
But for now, as the writer of Hebrews has told us, we have trials and tribulations that we go through. It's tough sometimes, but we know that we're looking for that city whose builder and maker is God. And we're joint heirs with Christ. That's the good news. Are you telling anybody about it? J.D. Greer has been reminding us who's your one, who's one person in your circles of influence that you need to be reaching with the gospel. Would you take Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, pray over this, go through it, and present, present the gospel to lost people around you? If we went on to read, we'd see in verse 10 that we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by good works. Good works are never the, f- the root of our salvation. They are the fruit of our salvation. We're able to do good works now because He saved us by His grace. Are you living like that new creation? Or is there some of the old filth of the world you need to get off? So people will see Jesus in you. Would you stand please? I'll be here to receive you and pray with those who would come forward saying, Pastor, the Holy Spirit's been working on me. Maybe you're looking for a church home. Maybe you're convicted about filth of the world that's not fitting for a child of God. Let God do in your heart what what you desperately need.